Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Tuesday, July 14, 2009, and this is the first interview at Conversations.net. This is not my usual fare, but I'm branching out, and it's my way of addressing the 30-plus most interesting books sitting on my desk, and, and Doug Rushkoff gets to be our first guest for Conversations.net. So, Doug, welcome. So glad to have you here. Terrific. I'm honored. Well, um, I've really been looking forward to this. I'm going to do a couple of short uh, um, introductory remarks about this environment. So if you'll bear with us for just a second. Uh, coming up uh, later this week okay. is uh, an interview with um, Terry Moe and John Chubb on their new book, Liberating Learning. Uh, Clay Shirky and Doc Searles have made commitments to come on conversations.net. We'll look forward to that. On futureofeducation.com, we have a great session coming up on the future of student journalism with uh, Leah Clapman from uh, the Jim Lehrer NewsHour. And then we're going to do a session on educational town hall meetings with uh, Grace Rubenstein from the George Lucas uh, Educational Foundation at Edutopia. So lots of fun things coming up. If this is your first time in Illuminate, wanted to make sure you understood uh, how this works. This is an interactive environment. You have options for participating. At the bottom of your participant window, you'll see uh, a little emoticons. There's a clapping hand, a smiley face, a thumbs down, or a confused face. These are ways of uh, you're expressing your feelings during the show. If you'd like to ask a question or take the mic, you can raise your hand by clicking on that icon with the hand and the green arrow up. You can put messages in the chat. Uh, I normally um, recommend that you actually switch the layout of your Illuminate view. So go up to View Layouts and try the wide layout. It works a little bit better for watching the chat go by. Uh, as questions come up in the chat, I will make an effort to capture those so that um, I can feed them to Doug as we get to an appropriate spot. You can leave uh, private messages for each other in that chat to another participant, but do know that uh, both Doug and I as moderators will see those messages. They're not completely private. So it might be kind of fun to find out where people are listening from tonight. So I'm going to give you permissions to modify this map. And what you do is look for a little wand with a red star at the end. And you click on that, and then you place it on the map where you're calling in from. And I'm wondering if our .it email address there is actually from Italy. So a very U.S. crowd it looks like tonight. That's either New York or Canada. Okay, so I'm going to switch over now. Uh, this is this is fun for me because uh, I I've had a really hard time putting your book down, Doug. Um, I thought it might be kind of fun for you to give a brief background of who you are and the work that you've done. And while you're doing that, I'm going to pull up the two web links to um, the Life Incorporated site and also your rushkoff.com. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I guess by, uh, by trade, I'm a media theorist. I've written a bunch of books on media and technology and culture. I came up during the early uh, cyber era and wrote some of the first books on the possibilities of a, you know, a, a technologically enhanced network culture 
to spawn all sorts of decentralized activities and to allow people to engage with one another uh, and, and trying out new models that weren't based in the uh, all of the institutional structures that that you know we're currently attempting to either serve or or uh, exploit human needs. And um, I was I, I guess as I as I wrote you know over the ten or fifteen years I wrote these books, I was kind of dismayed at how quickly the internet became a business story, and started to look at how that happened and why we were so prone to uh, develop things um, that really mirrored the reality we already had rather than attempting to create um, new realities and new structures that might be more beneficial to us as people. And I realized that no matter how you know, interactive and freeform the Internet was, we were still tending to value cash and, and money. Um, as as the the dominant currency, you know that while the internet was sort of originally created in the gift economy, it ended up becoming really just a way to perpetuate the the systems of the of the old economy. So I thought what I would do, and this was five or six years ago, was why not start looking at money as a medium? Why not why not claim money as another medium that a media theorist is allowed to deconstruct and analyze? And what I came to realize was that people really were looking at the money in their pockets as money rather than a kind of money that was developed by certain people with certain biases. And that's what led me to want to write this book, Life Inc. Because what I, what I found out was that centralized currency and corporations were both developed at a very specific moment in history and not for reasons that um, that we've come to take for granted. You know, we think of these things as developments that were meant to promote business activity and promote the market. When what I found out was that they were really created to prevent the free market from happening, to favor certain kinds of people and certain kinds of investment activity, and to really disfavor other kinds. And what we've ended up living in is a world where pretty much all of our transactions and interactions happen through one corporation or another rather than directly. And I, I wanted to write a book that kind of called attention to how we've internalized corporate values, how the world that we live in really functions more like a corporation than an ecology, and what we can do about really reclaiming, um, reclaiming this, this world for human activity rather than just corporate activity. I'm really intrigued that you actually uh, kind of came at this from the perspective of, of the Internet and what was taking place there. I'm not sure I had realized that. And part of what I wanted to do was to kind of drill down with you a little bit on the potential for the Internet to address some of the things that, that you discuss. But let's start kind of at the beginning. I wrote down as the main message of the book for me, we're not acting sensibly and we're not treating each other well. Is that the main message for you? Right. I mean, maybe a little bit, a little bit more specifically. I mean, the problem is when we live in a world that functions like a corporation, we tend to measure success through corporate metrics rather than human values. We tend to look at other people as competitors or targets rather than potential collaborators and friends. 
and we tend to look at the world we're living on as a bunch of regions to be conquered and exploited rather than places to take care of. So if, we, um, if, if we're seeing ourselves as competitors in the pursuit of our own selfish interests, how do we get to being collaborators? How do we stop acting like corporations and start acting like people? Well, I think the first thing, I mean, that's why I wrote a book, was to, try, was, is, to um, is to really smash the myth that human beings are born to be competitive and that we're all self-interested actors. You know, there's a lot of popular, but I would say bad science out there these days that, you know, promotes the idea that we're just, you know, one notch removed from monkeys who really bash each other's brains out and that human beings have always been warlike and that we've been in a, in a battle between individuals for survival for millions of years and you can't really change that. Because when you look at the real science, you find out that what actually allowed human beings to survive and evolve is the fact that we shared. You know, if you look at guys like Glenn Isaac, the Harvard archaeologist, he found that what allowed human beings to survive and why other uh, uh, hominids or whatever we want to call ourselves um, passed away was that human beings shared food. They worked in groups. You know, human beings, human females need other people around in order to successfully birth a baby. It certainly uh, improves your chances of survival. Now, most uh, evolutionary theorists would look at this as a disadvantage, but people who understand um, collaboration and food sharing and, and, and evolution from a, a, a more complex perspective understand that by being forced to engage with one another on a biological level, it was conducive to us uh, uh, working together on a social level and sharing resources and killing big things together as a group, you know, more, more uh, kind of the, the pack behavior of, of wolves who not so coincidentally became, you know, our, our best friend as a species because we really very much like them in terms of, uh, you know, doing things, uh, doing things in groups rather than just as individuals. So it's sort of once you realize that that is natural, then you can come to appreciate that these notions of the market are actually unnatural, that economics is not really a science like biology. Economists are not studying a natural system. They're studying a game that was invented at a certain moment in history and treating it as if it were a natural system. So I think the first step is for people to realize that the world we're living in and its, its underlying logic and rules are not just natural systems. It just didn't turn out this way. You know, it, was, it was made this way. And it's, it's as if you, know, you were born into a world where every computer used Microsoft Windows and you didn't know that there were once other operating systems or that you could run your computer on anything else. So it's sort of just knowing that this is possible and that it's not unnatural, that if anything it's easier um, is kind of the first step. I mean the second, and it's particularly easy now during a financial crisis, is really just to begin to address some of your own needs and other people's needs through alternative 
economies, even just gift economies, just doing something for a neighbor rather than, you know, or letting a neighbor do something for you rather than hiring a company to come do it, you know, to just join a CSA, a community supported agriculture group, rather than buying all of your produce from the supermarket shipped from God knows where, really changes your perspective on, you know, on who does what and who's allowed to um, retain the value from the work that they put in. So it felt to me like in the book you made a distinction between the technologies that can actually distance us, meaning the, the donations that we make to charities halfway across the world, versus the technologies that allow us to mobilize locally. Um, you know, maybe an example would be the use of a wiki for coordinating efforts in, in, on a local project. Do you see a distinction between those two different uses? I mean, I do. You know, and I hate to naysay uh, any effort at helping other people, whether they're close by or far away. But, but I think we have a tendency to want to do our social good through our laptops in a, in the sort of distanced and branded way that we make any other consumer choice rather than actually spending our time and energy to help real people around us. You know, and and our our local activism really can't be underestimated for its long distance effects. You know, every plate of chard that you source from a local farm instead of the supermarket is that much space on a truck, that much oil to ship it. I mean and and it does ripple. You know, so that if we do change our our sort of moment to moment behaviors and try to make them more consistent with our uh, our kind of longer term and and larger macro value set you know we notice uh, uh, you know tremendous system wide changes happen you know rather quickly so in the terms method of technology, oh, sorry, go ahead. i mean i mean in terms of technology i mean the 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 internet is certainly really good for connecting people from far away and for sharing models how are you doing what you do over there how did you create that you know uh, uh that system where you can take you know cooking oil and turn it into uh you know petrofuel i mean that and and to find out about that is great but there does come a time when you do have to get off the laptop and and actually get involved in something, you know. Otherwise, you really you're still just, um, in some sense, you're still just watching television. You know, we we all want to create the next great blog that puts together the ideas that are going to change the world, or join the big movement, or name the thing. But that's really a a, a brand manager's perspective on global change, rather than. Um, a human beings. So the book really resonated with me, I think, for those very reasons. And if I were to identify myself, and I don't know that I'm representative, but I would have said that my sort of worldview was that I tolerated capitalism and corporatism because they were the best of the possible alternatives. But what I've heard in the book and what, what I've sort of felt in myself is that's not good enough right now for me. Are other people responding in the same way? Um, yeah, I mean some are. I mean some people 
are basically are, are saying, well, how would we have gotten Facebook and Google and all this great stuff if it wasn't for corporate activity? How would we have gotten America and roads and cars and buildings and all the great stuff that we enjoy? And I don't know that um, that we would have gotten everything we have as fast as we got it, but we might have ended up able to to acquire and develop all these things in a way more consonant with what we wanted rather than creating really you know building corporations and then building our world around their needs you know most of us know by now that the the, the reason why we have to drive to work and that we have to have a car and why we need oil is because our suburbs were developed to promote the sale of automobiles as well as real estate and so that so that you know yes it's it's cars are cool things but the fact that we all need them and we all have to sit in them for 45 minutes to an hour whatever it is to get to get to work is really a product of building our world around um around the needs of corporations to pay back their debt rather than the real supply and demand or needs of of human beings who are planning a society uh, based around uh, what was beneficial to people rather than the most profitable to the companies they worked for. So one of the things so I do find, Go ahead. no, but but a lot of people um, do look at it and feel, um, you know, they feel really liberated after they read the book because they say, oh, I get it. We're we're just um, we're just beholden now to a particular system. The people who came up with this system have long since left the building. The, 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 uh, you know, the needs that they had or the, the priorities that they had no longer are our society's priorities. So um, it, it, it's all the more reason to, to slowly but surely um, you know, reinvent the kinds of mechanisms that allow us to transact directly in ways that actually fulfill one another's needs rather than transacting to fulfill the needs of an economy that just doesn't work anymore. Can you guys still hear me? Someone in the chat. If you can. I so I think I had my microphone off. <laughs> so I uh, I just uh, have been watching. Um, I read a book called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely from Duke uh, University, and he talks about how there are certain behaviors that are predictably irrational that we do, but once we identify them, they lose their power over us. So maybe a little of what I'm hearing from you is that the reader response is, okay, once we identify this, it's been this sort of elephant in the room. It, it becomes a little bit more. We feel a little bit freer to act independently of it. 
Yeah, I mean, the the problem some people have is, I mean, people that are really addicted to corporatism, people who really, you know, just want their McDonald's and want their 401k plans to balloon and just want this system to hold together until their retirement. Um, look at the book, and it's, it's funny to me because they look at it and like, oh, my God, this is an angry screed. You know, this is like this, this sort of angry manifesto where people who are kind of fed up with the financial crisis and fed up with bailing out Goldman Sachs through AIG look at it as this sort of optimistic breath of fresh air. So it really depends on a person's perspective going in. You know, what I tried to do um, in, the, in the beginning of the book was show people really how, um, how blameless we are, how we, we can't help but internalize corporate values when you live in such a corporate state that, you know, I, I start with the anecdote of getting mugged in Brooklyn and I went to a, a, a internet list and a, a mailing list of sort of nice lefty people in my neighborhood and posted what had happened. And the first two emails I got back were from people angry that I had posted the location of where I had gotten mugged because they thought that this, that this data could somehow hurt their short-term property values. So I was looking at people who cared more about the short-term asset value of their houses as property than the long-term experiential value of their homes as part of a community. And, and I don't say that in a way to be angry at them for being this way, but these are real, these are real people who are so afraid of not being able to pay back their mortgage of another mortgage when this one gets too expensive that they're with a property value that's higher that they've gotten so mired in this the, these rings of debt that they don't behave the way that they would really want to be behaving in a situation so it feels to me like there's a, a kind of a larger story here and in uh, ties in with your internet piece or at least a larger story for me which is that these tools of the internet are allowing a return to participation of, of not necessarily being the consumer or the passive observer, you know, participating in our, our entertainment and the other aspects of our lives. So is there some degree to which this uh, kind of participative renaissance that, that appears to be happening from the web provides us with an opening to get out of a sense of being sort of passive consumers. Now that's a long question, but I'm going to add well, a yeah. little. Go ahead. Well, well, you know, corporatism over the centuries systematically disconnected us from place, from people, from our ability to create value, and from our lives. And you know, mainstream media was really a continuation of that disconnection to the point where we each had our own television stations that we watch on cable in our own rooms and get marketed to. And you know, a, a, a lonely consumer is a better is a better target. Um, the internet came along and offered us really two things. One was the ability to connect with other people rather than just with media, with brands. You know, we could connect with other people on our own terms as human beings, and that uh, woke up a whole bunch of, of nerve endings that that had gone numb, I think, by the 1980s. 
And the second thing the Internet did that was actually even more powerful was allowed people to create value from the periphery. You know, you could, you could well, even today, you know, you can make an application with a $900 laptop computer and build a business or a career off that without ever borrowing money from the bank, without ever going into debt, without ever needing shareholders. You know, the ability to create value in a decentralized way is really something that we haven't seen in about 400 years. Most value creation has been monopolized by just a few big corporations in the middle. You know, and the minute you come up with something, you're going to be you're going to be bought. You know, the the temptation now is when you do come up with something, when you are able to create some value, is whether to sell your business or whether to operate it. Sustainable businesses, rather than thinking that the reason to start something is just to sell out. So, is there a degree to which our school systems reflected a belief that some percentage of the population didn't want to be actively engaged? And 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 now I'm thinking of John Taylor Gatto, who talked about the fact that the school system actually provided this benefit to corporations of a stable consumer group. But do, can we, do you think we could get to a place where, where a greater group of people wanted to be actively engaged, or is there an inherent sort of human tendency for some percentage of the population not to want to? Well, it depends what you mean by actively engaged. I mean, not everyone wants to be actively engaged in legislation and government and, and building society, but I do think many people would prefer to be actively engaged in the work they do and retaining more of the value of the work they do rather than just taking whatever salary their union can negotiate for them if they're even lucky enough to have a union these days. You know, Gatto wasn't just um, writing about the, how education was modeled to promote consumption, he was also writing about how it was how it was modeled to develop a compliant worker, someone who would be willing to work for less in a big company and not get meaning or value from what they did. You know, it's why we have it, why we have bells after classes. You know, he he and um, who was uh, he wrote about um, Edward Coverley and and you know Coverley bringing the Prussian model of education to America, and this was the the great education system funded by you know Carnegie and Rockefeller was really so they could get workers who would not strike, there wouldn't be labor unrest. These would be people who would be willing to work for some kind of parental corporation rather than for themselves. So it's not a matter even of whether people want to be active or not. You don't need to be an activist if you're allowed to actually work for a living. So I'm also interested in the question of our, our ability to actually create systems. Oh, your mic is, is you popped out again. Oh, I actually turned my mic down so I wouldn't be so loud, but it, can you hear me now? Am I coming through? Okay. So I'm wondering about uh, things like the stock market, where the daily fluctuations of the stock market create an emotional response that's not really healthy or appropriate in terms of the long-term view. So how do we how do we help self-create uh, systems that allow us to actually keep a better perspective? Um, 
it's hard. It's hard, especially right now. You know, we go into a financial crisis, and everybody looks at the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the GNP as the metrics to gauge the health of our economy, where these aren't really measures of the health of our economy. They're the measures of the health of the speculative economy. I mean, if everybody on this conversation got cancer tonight, that would be good for the GNP, right? Because more drugs would have to be would have to be purchased and more medical procedures would have to be done. So just the fact that we're spending more money doesn't mean, especially in the short term, doesn't mean that our society is healthier. It just means that one of the metrics that we use improperly to gauge our health is is going up or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I mean, what what is that? You know, what are these companies? The, the Fortune 500 are not really productive companies anymore. These are just names on debt. When the Dow Jones goes up, it means that the stories of these companies are good enough so that people are willing to lend them more money and their P&E can go up, the amount of money they're worth you know, supposedly, or the amount of money they trade for versus what they actually produce. You know, the way, the way to, uh, uh, well, the way to create an alternative to that is to begin to engage in economic activity that occurs outside um, that sector, is to do stuff that's, that's um, is to buy things from people rather than from companies, you know, to uh, to create businesses that are scaled to the laws of supply and demand, rather than to the debt structure that you've acquired by borrowing so much money, you know, that you have to now expand at a rate that's dictated by the market rather than the real economy. So, have you played with the site or bought anything from Etsy.com? Yeah, I've bought from Etsy, um, you know, and and you know, and I've used you know eBay in a way that feels kind of homespun, but um, and that's and that's definitely uh, that's definitely a start because you're supporting people who are actually making stuff, at least most of them. I mean, there's also opportunities in the places where people live. I mean, there's a restaurant here called Comfort that wanted to expand and they couldn't get any money from the bank because the bank wasn't lending to small businesses anymore. They had enough of their own problems. And we all in the community needed this restaurant to expand. We wanted it to be bigger so they'd have more room and more food for us. And what we ended up doing was creating a, a the simplest form of alternative currency, something we called comfort dollars after the restaurant. And what you would do is if you bought – if you basically gave $100 to the restaurant, you would get back 120 comfort dollars to spend at the restaurant. And this is money we we're going to spend anyway because it's the only good restaurant in town, so we're all going there and doing takeout. So here we are. We get, we get a 20% return on our investment, and the owner of the restaurant gets money cheaper than he can get it from the bank, and he can pay it back with his goods and services rather than having to get expensive cash to pay back the bank. So I love that story because uh, of a couple of things, one of which is it brings back your theme of doing something locally. But the other is it seems as though our ability to do some of these things locally is, is still enhanced by having some of these tools 
where the internet allows us to organize and create without going through larger organizations to do so. Right, for the most part. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, it's true. On the other hand, I mean, I made a movie to promote my book, right? So I make the movie on a on a Sony camera and cut it together on Final Cut on a Mac and upload it through Time Warner's Roadrunner to Google YouTube in order to to distribute it to people. Now, luckily, um, uh, a lot of this stuff is 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 free or relatively. Um, at relatively low cost, but it certainly there's a whole lot of traditional corporate activity that goes into most of our decentralized non-corporate activity. And I don't mean to say that means that the activity that we're doing is is valueless, but that um, it is it is still dependent on a functioning. Uh, a functioning set of corporations. So it's not even that we want all corporations to go away. You know, you're going if you want to source a computer or an airplane or you know or PVC tubing or something, it's sometimes it's good to have a big corporation that knows how to make this stuff and that can get you know the the that can supply and source everything that's needed to make these really you know complex uh, complex machines and networks. At the same time, we don't necessarily have to do everything um, through those corporations, and we can use the, the the networks that they've bequeathed us to get involved in highly decentralized and and direct transaction with one another. So, I mean, I see it as it's kind of a double-edged sword, um, and and there's potentially, especially with new kinds of corporations um, that that are developing around. These uh, these services, there are um, there are ways to collaborate even with them um, in order to uh, uh, you know build a more uh, well a, a more a more prosperous uh, society. Well, I certainly feel as though the the technologies of the internet have baked into them a level of openness that brings out authenticity um, and, and honesty. Do you feel like that's true as well, that even the large corporations are being um, held a little bit more accountable for being more authentic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think large corporations like to see transparency as a strategy, where I think transparency now is uh, it's even more than an obligation. It's just a requirement. You know, we we can see inside companies now, and the fact that we can that the bias of the internet towards transparency, towards being able to see what's going on, is forcing a lot of these companies to come to grips with the fact that they don't really do anything anymore. You know, a company that's outsourced pretty much every one of its core competencies to someone else doesn't really exist anymore. And these are the these are the kinds of companies that are going to be struggling um, in in an increasingly, you know, internet driven era. You know, they want to build social networking sites, but they have no one in the company to man them because there's no one home. There's no one who cares about the industry that that company's in. So I do think the internet's going to act a bit like a kind of a truth serum, and it is going to, to weed out a lot of the players who really don't uh, create any value for us anymore. 
So I wonder if you'd um, allow me to try a little experiment. I, I'm, I'm anxious for people to read the book. Can I read the chapter titles and have you give a 20-second description of each chapter? Sure, I'll try. Okay, so uh, we'll skip the introduction. But uh, once removed, the corporate life form. Well, really what I looked at in that chapter was how, how and when the corporation was developed. And the story I tell is that the corporation was not a natural business phenomenon, but was the invention of really failing feudal lords and early kings who were watching a merchant class rise up beneath them and needed a way to continue making money by doing nothing. You know, these were families that hadn't worked in 500 years. So they created the corporation. Really, they created monopolies for their best friends. And in return, they got to passively invest in these companies. So they created the British East India Trading Company, which could then really um, take every, uh, uh, every bit of value that was coming out of the American colonies or out of China and in return for that privilege, the company had to give the king some money. You know, and the other big thing, well, I guess I'll talk about it later, but the other big thing they invented in that period was centralized currency, which was a way that they could really make money by lending money to people rather than actually doing anything. This is great. Okay, mistaking the map for the territory. Well, what I looked at there was our disconnection from place. You know, how, you know, even just, you know, 70 years ago, when a person said home, they weren't referring to the structure in which they lived. Their home was the town that they came from. You know, so what I look at in this chapter are sort of the successive disconnections from place, how place became property, and property became your private family dwelling, and then your private family dwelling became the mortgage, and then how the mortgage became the derivative, and really how you know, now we operate in these you know, mortgage-backed securities that are pretty much thrice removed from anything resembling land um, and how this changes our relationship to it really disconnects us from any notion of land as, as a real thing. Great. The Ownership Society. Same story? What's the, what, that's, the Ownership Society is, is, what's the subtitle on that one? Well, it's, I think it, it's, it's an outgrowth of the previous. It's Real Estate and the Disconnect from Home. I think you kind of covered well, that. I, 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 I that in there. I mean, I talk a lot about, you know, the, the Wealth Expo in that chapter, which is this kind of bizarre gathering that's sponsored by the Learning Annex where they, you know, pay a, um, Donald Trump and George Foreman and the guy from uh, the guy from Flip This House to come and teach people really how to take advantage of people going into foreclosure. And the funniest thing about going to that convention was that most of the people there learning how to take advantage of people going into foreclosure were people who were in foreclosure themselves. <laughs> so. That, that was probably for me one of the hardest parts of the book to read because it did feel sad. Yeah, it is. And the other thing that's said about it is, is 
you know, you have not just these charlatans speaking at this event, but Alan Greenspan, you know, spoke by satellite, you know, as if to convey some some sense of, of uh, uh, you know, a, official authority on these proceedings. And really, what what Alan Greenspan's participation in an event like this says to me is that this really is the real estate market, that he's, you know, trying to, you know, help the economy along the way he knows best, and that is by finding ever, you know, ever more people to fill in the bottom rungs, you know, in the pyramid scheme that is real estate in America today. Okay. Individually wrapped, public relations and the disconnect from one another. Well, what I looked at in that chapter was the way the the notion of the individual, which was really uh, kind of revived in the Renaissance at the same time as as corporatism was invented, this this notion of the individual really um, uh, rose in prominence, you know, after World War II, as we needed to create a society of consumers capable of consuming all the stuff that our corporations were churning out. So in order to fund the industrial age, we needed every person to buy everything so that instead of having you know, one barbecue pit at the end of the block that everyone can share, we need every single family to buy its own barbecue. And really advertising and public relations ended up um, really helping convince us that our identity as individuals trumped any other associate association that we might have, that the groups we belong to, you know, the, the, the community groups and the, the, I mean, gosh, everything from, from uh, you know, the Kiwanis to the Knights of the Pythians and, and our labor unions and all the other sort of um, uh, consolidations of, 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 of people. Um, was less important than than you. You know, you, you're the one. Um, you know, you matter. You deserve it. You know, because you're what matters. And that's, um, that's a, a, a dangerous and, and alienating, isolating um, perspective to, to incorporate into our worldview. You know, because we're not really alone. People who are alone and acting individually are really not as happy as people who have friends and are sharing and interacting with others. But the value system that we've adopted really says the opposite. So I think that covered Chapter 5 as well, that you, you're the one. What about to whom credit is due, self-interest and the disconnect from currency? Well, I kind of talk about two things in that chapter. One is what I was talking about before, this false notion um, that our, our, many of our economic theories are based on the idea that you know, each of us is uh, a kind of a rational individual going after our self-interest in competition with all the other individuals. And so I talk about that. And I talk about how um, you know, currency was really developed to, to exploit this, this um, newfound sense of competition, whereas currency in the late Middle Ages, and even in some cases in the early Renaissance, was something that you kind of worked into existence. Currency, currency in, in the old days was not something that was you know, uh, uh, needed out by a king or a central bank. It was something you would, you would 
uh, grow grain on your farm and you'd bring it to the town and the grain store would give you a receipt for how much grain you had brought in. You know, 100 pounds of grain, you'd get a 100-pound receipt. And then you can tear up that receipt. You can use different portions of it to buy the things you needed. You know, give five pounds of grain and get some chickens and give two pounds and get some, you know, get some shoes. And it led to an extremely prosperous economy because the the amount of money you had was based in the abundance of that year's crop. So you had a very abundant um a very abundant form of currency. So when kings wanted to get rich or stay rich in the face of this growing prosperity, what they did was they made all of that money illegal and forced people instead to use scarce coin of the realm that they could meet out, that they could lend into existence rather than have people earn it into existence. And there was only as much money as they put into the system, which then engendered the competitiveness that we see in our economy today. So the, the competition of the free market is not really a requirement, but is a, uh, is a, a, a game rule that was put in place by making other kinds of transactions illegal. So I must be doing a good job because Peggy George has already downloaded the book to her Kindle. So chapter seven, from ecology to economy, big business and the disconnect from value. Oh well what I was looking at there were were really all the bigs, you know, big agra, big pharma, big oil, and that that they don't actually do things more efficiently. What they do well is get laws written that favor their operation over the operation of smaller players. So one one really recent and an Etsy related example is when um the the toy industry, you know, outsourced so much of their toy manufacturing to China in order to lower costs. A lot of toys ended up coming back with lead paint in them. And this led to, you know, a huge outcry and of course, you know, the consumer revolt and the way we responded to it, the way government responded, was by creating stringent new regulations on any toy that is released to American children. Now, the companies didn't resist this at all. They welcomed it. Why? Because it now costs, you know, fifty or a hundred thousand dollars to test a toy and release it to American children. And what this effectively does is it makes it impossible for anyone but the biggest players to be involved in toy manufacturing. If you've got a, a business in your garage where you put out, you know, a hundred toys a year or even a thousand toys a year, how are you going to pay a hundred thousand dollars for each toy that you put out? What if you make one of a kind toys? You can't even test one of a kind toy because in order to test it they've got to burn it and test it and all that. So the toy is gone. So you can't actually you can't custom make individual toys for people. So when when what I write about in this chapter is really the way that uh, the way that the, the largest industries really make it um, virtually impossible for anyone, from the organic farmer to the uh, to the small um, craft shop, to uh, to operate um, in the in the regulatory scheme. Okay, two chapters to go. If there are questions, feel free to put them in the chat. Bill's asking, I think maybe rhetorically, why on earth does it cost so much to test a toy? 
But let's quickly go through. So no returns, how resistance disconnects us even further. I, I, yeah, well, why, why it costs so much to test a toy is that if it costs that much to test a toy, then that favors big companies over small, just like it costs, you know, $400 million to test a drug, you know, and that really what that does is it keeps us buying big pharma's drugs rather than discovering, you know, that, that cayenne pepper, you know, might cure the flu. If cayenne pepper cured the flu, that would be a bad thing for the economy as we currently measure it. But the chapter that you're on now is really what I tried to look at in there is that our because of the way we've been been trained, if you will, we tend to look to you know big centralized answers to the world's problems. And the problem is, you know, donating a bunch of money that then sits in a big pot has an effect of its own. So you know, the, take the Gates Foundation. You know, and they mean well. Bill Gates wants to take this huge wad of money that he's made and put it towards great things like, you know, malaria and, and, and fetal, you know, distress in Africa and great stuff. But the LA Times ended up doing a, uh, uh, an investigation of where the funds are sitting. And the billions of dollars of the Gates Foundation are being invested in companies involved in the very things that the Gates Foundation is supposedly trying to correct. So. It's, it ends up being a very uh, kind of a long-distanced way of, um, and, and if you will, capitalist or corporatist way of addressing problems rather than just doing things, um, you know, directly or locally, uh, you know, which is sort of what we're all responsible for. Okay, the final chapter, and the one in which you tell the the comfort. Uh, story, the organic cafe story, is here and now. Yeah, I mean what what I'm what I'm trying to do in in that chapter is uh get people to consider um a, a kind of a, a scaled activism that takes place in the present. So that rather than working towards some great utopian goal where, you know, the ends even might justify some temporarily dastardly means. Instead, we actually just start doing the things that we need to do to reclaim the world that we're living in. You know, whether it's you know supporting your local restaurant or you know volunteering your time to a public school in your neighborhood rather than earning more money to send your kid to the private school. You know, how do you get out of the sort of the insulation equation where most of us? end up working harder in order to make more money to insulate ourselves from the world we're living in rather than actually working less and spending more time to just make the world that we're in a better place. So what I'm trying to do in that chapter is really even just get people to feel comfortable accepting favors from other people. I remember when, uh, when we had our baby, you know, uh, we didn't know how to breastfeed a baby. No one really does, and our moms don't know because they're from the formula era. So what, what, what happens is in where we were is you hire a lactation consultant to teach you, you know, for money how to breastfeed. And it's really partly because we're 
embarrassed or ashamed or afraid to just accept a favor from the old lady down the hall who raised nine kids and breastfed all of them because if you accept that favor from her, what have you gotten yourself into? You know, what is she going to expect in return? Is she going to want to, you know, come over and sing show tunes or something on your piano? So I feel like people are uh, need the encouragement to take the real baby steps that are going to matter most, which is to begin to engage and exchange value with the people in their own lives, you know, for free or even, you know, for some of these alternative currencies that are coming up, um, rather than feeling like it's it's somehow safer, cleaner, and better to do it with a professional. So t tell us what you've got coming up. Are you going to be a correspondent for Digital Nation? Did I get that correctly? Yeah, I mean the PBS is, is you know, got a bunch of money from Verizon to do what's called the Digital Nation project, and it's you know it's both a website and a documentary that's trying to look at you know where are we? I mean the the, the place I'm coming to it from is. I mean, I you know really uh, you know cut my chops as a as a journalist and a writer, explaining the the coming digital era to the uninitiated. You know, really preparing a nation of immigrants for their you know migration into cyberspace. And now you know, 20 years later, I feel like I'm I'm among the last generation that knows what it was like before we had. A digital nation, you know, and maybe my job now is much more about looking at what values are being taken with us into the digital realm, and which ones are being left behind, and do we want to preserve some of them? Are some of them need to be taken along that are 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 being forgotten for one reason or another? So I had to smile when you said that it's you know a series being sponsored by Verizon. Of course, large corporation. Yeah. And uh, what uh, I had a very interesting experience because I interviewed Rachel for the FutureofEducation.com interview series. And what was fascinating to me was that when really good producers of content use the web, you know, like a project like Digital Nation, all of a sudden there are hundreds of hours of really high quality content that are really compelling and interesting to watch. And it's almost as though the individual user contribution is going to have to uh, figure out how to how to be a part of it when really good producers of content can produce hundreds of hours now. Right. I mean and it's also a matter of of you know Rachel who's the producer of the project and everyone working on it to really determine what value they can create. I mean, is it the job of the Digital Nation Project to create a platform for Americans to um, you know, share their stories and their media? Or are there enough platforms that do that already? And maybe is the thing that we could, that we could best, uh, best deliver is you know, more television in a sense. You know, rather than having a one-hour uh, frontline documentary that people watch on an evening, what if we did have you know, 100 hours? Of interesting footage for people who want to pursue it, you know, to find out more about, you know, 
professional gamers in Korea or, you know, Internet addicts in Ohio, you know, whatever story it is that they really want to delve into. It seems like this is a way to um, really share a whole lot more of the value that's created in that several hundred thousand dollar media project than you can get by watching an hour of TV. I think that's really interesting, and, and I think you've, you touched on this early in the interview, which is when an organization like PBS or Frontline or um, Verizon says, we want to create a platform for user interaction, it almost has lost something in that very moment because it didn't come out of the desire of the user to interact and create that platform themselves. Okay, so a few minutes left for questions. Um, I don't know the first name of C. Zadek, Zautk, and I'm sure I'm not even saying that correctly, but you were saying that Doug had described education reform. Did you want to touch on that at all? I think I knew you agreed. Did either of you want to grab the mic for a minute? And it looks like you can we'll see there's a, right, you can see a little response being formulated there in the chat bubble, which means the typing. Sorry, I figured, I figured out how to do that. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but that would be an interesting thing to explore. Uh, Doug, really appreciate your taking the time. I have to say uh, this has been the most thought-provoking book I've read in a long time, and, and one I'm really grateful that you were willing to explore with us tonight. This has been recorded. It will get posted at conversations.net, um, and we'll, we'll hope that others will have a chance to listen uh, to your description of the book and your thoughts on this. Did you want to say anything as a final word? Um, well, first, thank you guys for, um, I just tried to type that, um, for the opportunity to do this. Hopefully the form will get you know, more interactive as time goes on so that you know, it can be a, a you know, so people can have a, a, a bigger pipe for feedback and, and, and discussion. Um, you know, I, I guess you know. I guess in, in closing, I would maybe go back to that education reform. You know, it's funny that that you know Marx and all these folks basically said that you know an educated population is really the the only um, you know the only path to a, a a more vibrant and and interactive society. And it's just that we may have to start looking at other means of educating ourselves. And one another than paying institutions for, uh, you know, for degrees. You know, there, there's um, a lot of knowledge and a lot of value we can create for each other. A lot of education we can give each other just, you know, by by talking and listening in these forums. And as people get smarter, um, the the situations that we're putting up with really become, you know, not only intolerable but in some sense smaller because we can actually visualize the methods um, that we can easily take to, to arrest their development and, and spawn the development of, of more fruitful alternatives. I think that's a great way to finish. I'm going to clap for you, Doug. If you want to give Doug a hand, you can do so by clicking on the little clapping hand icon at the bottom of the participant box. There have been a lot of compliments in the chat. I've just put the uh, post-show survey up. Please, uh, Doug, if you close that down, Doug, it will close down for everyone. So please just go ahead and leave that open. 
but please fill it out and let us know uh, what you thought and how we can improve the, the interview series. This has been the first Conversations.net interview series. You've all participated in something new and we appreciate it. The book is Life, Inc. with Douglas Rushkoff. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, thank you. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming. Thanks to Illuminate for providing this platform. Um, please uh, feel free to email me or participate in the futureofeducation.com or the new conversations.net uh, social networks. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking more about the concepts in this book. Good night, everyone, and thanks again, Doug. <laughs>